about the Institute of Catholic Culture. Three years ago, we were founded uh, over at St. John the Beloved in McLean. Um, and we've been working uh, for three years now offering educational opportunities in Catholic history, philosophy, theology, especially in sacred scripture, educating the faithful and equipping them to be able to go out and give an answer for the hope that they have of the resurrection, to be able to face those in our society that doubt Jesus Christ and to be able to give a cogent answer. We've hosted Father Benedict Rochelle, Dr. O'Donnell, Father Mitch Pacwa, uh, I could go on and on, Dr. William Marshner, those of you who have been in our room over at St. John the Beloved, you remember all of the posters surrounding that we have had. We host one, two, and sometimes three lectures a week. We've covered Islamic Jihad, the Book of Genesis, the Crusades, today uh, the Book of Revelation, the Angels, the Angelic Choir, and so forth. We've covered... Well, not everything there is to cover in the faith because the faith is unending and we will keep teaching the faith, covering different topics, different periods of history as we go to equip those adult Catholics that need to be equipped with the faith. You're all here for a reason and I think it's because you want to learn something that you don't know about the faith. There is so much that we don't know about the faith and there is so much that our Lord is offering us and this is what the, the Institute of Catholic Culture is dedicated to. I want to thank especially our donors that are here today, um, uh, many of which are chairman of the, or, or uh, directors of the board um, that we just had our first meeting on July 1st. We have left St. John the Beloved, okay, and have established the Institute of Catholic Culture as a non-profit educational institute dedicated to going out to parishes like St. Leo's, offering educational opportunities and cultural opportunities at no charge to the parish, and no charge to attendees. And so we are all very indebted to the donors that we have with us today. Um, you saw on your way in that little three-fold brochure. I should have one up here. Okay. Uh, if you believe that we need to restore adult catechesis in the Catholic Church, that we need to educate Catholics in their own faith and welcome non-Catholics alike, okay, please consider becoming a pledge donor. I don't pass out baskets at our, at our events or, or plead and plead for a dollar or five dollars. I don't believe in that. If you're a tither and you believe in reaching out to those in need to keeping our doors open at no charge and offering what Christ offered us for free, then please consider filling out that donor brochure. Um, and to our topic today, I have to do it from memory because he's my brother and I should know something about him. <laughs> Sebastian Carnazzo um, received his Bachelor of Science in Animal Science preparing to become a veterinarian at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, California, where we're from. And um, little did he know that as he was preparing himself to deal with animals, um, God was preparing him for a much higher calling. After receiving his degree, um, in veterinary science, he spent a year in the desert uh, with a monastery of monks, discerning God's calling in his life. That calling took him away from California, as it did for me, um, to a place that we knew nothing about, uh, the East Coast in Virginia, to study theology. He received his master's from Christum's Graduate School, Notre Dame Graduate School, Christum College. And after finishing his master's, uh, he enrolled at Catholic University to, to receive a doctoral degree in sacred scripture, and I believe also received a master's degree in 
biblical languages. So, um, with that said, I have one more important aspect, and that is it is his anniversary today, and he took time away from his beautiful family, his wife, to be with us, and so we're very thankful for that. Uh, please welcome Sebastian Curtis. today is the book of Revelation. A word that is associated with the book of Revelation is the word the apocalypse. What do you think about when you hear the word apocalypse? Apocalyptic. Hmm? Devastation. Oh, it's apocalyptic. What else? End of the world, which will obviously be associated with devastation. Coming of Christ. Coming of Christ. What else? Apocalypse. Tiblahay. <laughs> and that very uh, entertaining but horribly unbiblical series called the Left Behind series, which tragically many Catholics would be. What else? The rapture. Oh, the rapture. <laughs> what else? The beast. The beast. What kind of beast? Lots of heads, lots of horns. The Antichrist? Lots of heads, lots of horns. Very apocalyptic. What else? Four horses. Four horses. Four horses. Wow. <laughs> I hope reading the right thing. What else? The mark. <laughs> you don't have it, do you? <laughs> Anything else? Six, six, six. Six, six, six. That sounds scary. Six hundred and sixty-six. The number of his name. So, these are the images that we come up with when we hear about the book of Revelation. Or the apocalypse. Now, what would you say if I told you that the number 666, 666, while it appears in the book of Revelation refers to another passage in the Bible where the number 666 appears also. In fact, it's in one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. Then you might think, I didn't know that. I've never read that. Well, that's, a, that's not surprising. No one reads the Old Testament. <laughs> Why would we do that? It's too thick. There's all that blood and guts and Philistines and Levites. You know, it's too confusing. What if I told you that the mark of the beast also refers to the Old Testament? And in fact, that the mark does not refer to futuristic 
subcutaneously implanted computer chips, <laughs> or your cell phone, or the barcode, or the birthmark on Gorbachev's forehead. <laughs> but the first one to give a mark, you remember that one, don't you remember that one? Gorbachev? So, the first one to give a mark in the Bible, who was that? The first one to give it. And he gave it to Cain to punish him? Perfect. Now, how does that jive with futuristic, subcutaneously affected computer chips? In fact, the next time you hear about a mark, the mark is to be given to yourself. And it's a sign that you are perfectly righteous in accord with God. And you have the mark on your forehead and on your hand. And what's that have to do with the mark of the beast? Everything. In the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, when the author refers to the mark of the beast, he's assuming you've read the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament writers, as you read them, it is obvious that they are writing to an early church that knows the Old Testament like the back of their hand. And we'll talk about that later. <coughs> what would you say if I told you that the word Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation? Well, if it doesn't appear in the book of Revelation, where does it appear? If the Antichrist comes at the end, and he's this horrible figure, could have been Gorbachev, he's gone now. <laughs> but it doesn't appear in the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic and tells us about the end of the world. We have a major problem. How are we to recognize the Antichrist when he appears? If he's not described in the book of Revelation. How are you to recognize him when he comes on the scene? You only recognize him if you look right up here. I am the Antichrist. <laughs> and so are you. Now I know you're thinking, I gave up Good Morning America to listen to this? <laughs> is the author of the New Testament who used that title, which is also John the Evangelist. Open up your Bibles with me to the place where the word Antichrist actually does appear. And that's in 1 John. 1 and 2 John. If you open up your Bibles towards the end there, toward the end of the New Testament, if you come to the book of Revelation, you've gone too far, we'll get there eventually. Go back a few little books, and you'll come to the Epistles of John. A few little pages, right before the book of Revelation. 1 John. Are you there? Chapter 2, verse 18. 
Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, an Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Now, hold on just a minute. There's more than one? We've got a problem. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed. John's playing there off that, that idea of the anointed. Christos, which we already heard. Antichristos. Contrary to those who have left us, you have the true anointing. And you all know, verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and know that no lies of the truth. Verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what He has promised us. Eternal life. What is that that abides in us from the beginning? How are we to know? Well, from this passage we hear that you have heard that an Antichrist is coming, and John is writing this at the end of the first century. And he says, so many Antichrists have already come. How did they know about Gorbachev all the way back then? <laughs> if you flip over the next page, your Bibles, or around there, you'll come to the second epistle of John, which is the other place that the word Antichrist appears in your Bible. The second epistle of John, very short. And he says this, verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find that some of your children follow in the truth, just as we have been commanded by the Father. And now I beg you, lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning. The lady, the children, what are we talking about? We're talking about the churches. The early churches understood themselves as brides of Christ. And the parishioners were the children. And so John refers to them as the children. And he refers to the group or the governing, the governance of that church as the lady. And so he's addressing, he's writing this letter to a church in Asia Minor, and he says, verse 6, and this is love. Love. What's that do with the Antichrist? What's that have to do with what we heard from the beginning? Go back up to verse 5 again. And now I beg you, lady that is the church he's referring to, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning. Remember that language from the first epistle? That we love 
one another. Verse 6, and this is love, that we follow his commandments. This is the commandment. As you have heard from the beginning, that you follow love. For many deceivers have gone out of the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that you may not lose what you have worked for. So, those are the two places in the Bible where we get the title Antichrist. What do you get from that? Well, John's aware of many Antichrists already. The Antichrists are specifically, John knows the name of many of them in his time, who have been among them, who have been involved in the church, and they have left. And as John reasons, the reason why they have not left is because they did not abide in the Son. And without abiding in the Son, you cannot abide in the Father. And the Son is God in the flesh. We don't have enough time to get deeply into the major themes of John's epistles, but in many ways they reflect the theme of his gospel. As you know from the prologue, God dwelt among us and became flesh. John reasons in his first epistle, look, my brother, if you don't love one another, then how can you say you love God? If God has become flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ, and those who are in the church have been baptized into Christ, and therefore being in Christ are in the Father, and you say you love God, and you are a follower of Christ, but you do not love one another, how can you say, as he says in his first epistle, that you love God whom you can't see, but your brother in whom God dwells whom you can't see? That can't be. And to the degree that we do not love our brother as God loved us, that's the new commandment that Jesus gives in John's Gospel. That we love one another as God has loved us. That we would be willing to lay down our life for our friends. And to the degree that we do not love one another is to the degree that we do not dwell in the Son and therefore not in the Father. Turn with me now to the book of Revelation. I want to show you something else that might surprise you. Not only is the word Antichrist not found in the book of Revelation anywhere, and not only do we find that where it appears, there's already been a bunch of them by the time of John's writing in the first century, and he expects many more to appear. But the book of Revelation also tells us something about itself. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, what must take place 2,000 years from now? <laughs> Is that what your Bible says? <laughs> what must soon take place? If you have a pen, you might want to underline that word. Soon. 
that's weird. How could he be talking about the end of the world? And now he says, soon. He must be mistaken. Let's continue. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein, for the time is very far off. <laughs> for the time is near. Near. Very difficult. In fact, if you flip over in your Bibles to the end of that chapter, look at chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To America? To Russia? To China? No. Send it to the seven churches of Asia. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, not to be confused with our Philadelphia, and Laodicea. What's that have to do with the future? Boy, that's really dirtying up the water. What do these churches have to do with anything? We'll see. In fact, as the vision continues, look at verse 19. Now write what you see, what is, and what is to take place hereafter. What is? What is? And what is to take place hereafter? Well, we know that he's already mentioned things are going to be happening very quickly, very soon, is very near. But we just found out that the revelation to John is about the present situation, what is, and what will take place hereafter. And the hereafter is very near. In fact, as you know from reading a book in, or learning how to speed read, which I don't recommend doing in the Bible, but for the sake of time for a second here, flip over to the end of the book. Do you know if you want to find out about a book or a chapter? You read the beginning, you read the end, and you get a general sense of it. And don't worry, over the next couple of weeks we will be getting into the middle. To the end of the book, the last chapter now. Chapter 22, verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and of prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am he who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy 
for the time is near. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, looking at those passages, what can you tell me about the book of Revelation, just from that information? As opposed to what you've heard about the book of Revelation from Tim LaHaye, or from a movie. You hear about Christ's return. And when is it supposed to happen? Very soon. What else did you hear about the book? What's the context? What's the genre of it? About the past? About the present? About the future? And who is it being written to? Well, to us, of course. The book of Revelation, as you read it, you find that it is not written to us. But it is written specifically to seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, Imagine reading the Epistle to the Romans as some sort of apocalyptic code about the future. Or imagine reading Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians as some sort of apocalyptic code for the future. Or imagine taking seven of Paul's letters written to seven churches of Asia Minor and thinking they are some sort of apocalyptic code for unlocking the future and the identity of the Antichrist. Be a little strange. Halfway in the book of Galatians. Read that way. What you find as you read the first and last chapter of the book, and in fact when you read through the whole thing, is that there is an author. Who is that author? John. We, we find out his name is John. It would probably be relevant for finding out what he has to say. Know who the author is. We also find out that he's writing to a particular audience. Who is that audience? The seven churches of Asia Minor. It would probably be helpful to know something about those churches, wouldn't it? And in fact, as we looked in chapter 1, chapter, two, uh, chapter 22, we also heard a hint, though it's in much more detail as we read into the body of the text, to the purpose of the book. Open up to chapter 1 again. Verse 1. What is the purpose of this book? Revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow, that's pretty original. The revelation of Jesus Christ sounds like a John's Gospel. In fact, it sounds like the entire New Testament. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus, His purpose, His identity, His role, His relationship to the Father, and His plan for everyone. But in particular, for the seven churches of Asia Minor for whom, for whom this book was written. And in fact, that is hinted at in verse 19. Now write what you see, what is the present historical situation 
and what will take place hereafter. Why? Because the churches of Asia Minor are about to face, and are already in the midst of it, a horrible persecution. And in fact, John is one of those being persecuted. John was told to write these things down while he was on the island of Patmos. Again, something historically relevant here, right? He's on the island of Patmos. And why is he there? He's on vacation. Patmos is a beautiful island. He is in exile. He is facing the tribulation. The tribulation. Oh, that sounds like Tim LaHaye. The tribulation. John is in the midst of the tribulation. But the tribulation, that's supposed to be in the future when Armageddon happens and the Antichrist appears. No. The tribulation is the present moment for John. And that's why he's in exile. The Roman Empire is persecuting the Christian church with all of its power. It is killing Christians left and right. John, one of the last living disciples of Jesus Christ, if not the last one at this stage in history, is exiled to the island of Patmos, away from his jurisdiction, Asia Minor. And from the island of Patmos, while he is in exile from his church, he is writing back to his church, which is made up of a number of churches of Asia Minor. It might be helpful to know something about the Roman Empire at the period, the historical context. Why are they persecuting the Christians? They don't like Christians. Christians are very bad citizens. They go around helping people. They have soup kitchens. They've got deacons who constantly feed the poor. They're a bunch of do-gooders, and we just don't The Roman Empire is concerned about the Christians for another reason. Because the Christians refuse to worship Caesar. They have one king and one God. And they worship him alone. And that makes the Roman Empire very nervous. We'll see why in a second. So let's look at these three issues in more detail. Authorship, audience, and purpose. If you were to find a letter on the ground outside of St. Leo's, you're walking back to your car and you what's that under my car? And you pick it up, there's an envelope. And you open it up, you've got to find out the, you know, who to give this letter to. So you open it up and you see, well, there's a name there. You look at the top, there's a, there is an audience, a perp, uh, the, the addressee. And then you would probably quickly skim down, look at the bottom and see if you recognize the name at the bottom maybe. And if you, after having gotten that information, the two names, the audience and the author, then you, if you still couldn't figure out who to return this letter to, you might skim through it quickly and try to find out some of its contents. Try and discern what this letter is all about. Why is it sitting there in the parking lot next to your car? Is it relevant? Do I need to return it to somebody? Did someone leave it here for me? So knowing the author, the audience, or the addressee, and the purpose of a letter is important for understanding that letter. I would imagine you would agree. And in fact, to the degree that you do not know the author and the addressee, it's to the degree that you're going to have a lot of trouble figuring out the purpose. Let's look at these three issues 
The author of the book identifies himself as the servant John. We saw this in chapter 1, and we also saw this in chapter 22. A title is commonly interpreted to refer to St. John, the apostle and evangelist. There was some debate in the early church, and there has continued, but for the most part, the majority of the church and the majority of the tradition has historically understood this John the Elder on Patmos to be John the Apostle. This interpretation, which is supported by a myriad of literary parallels between the book of Revelation and the fourth gospel, is also maintained by a number of early church fathers, such as Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and many others. According to Tertullian, St. John was brought from the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor to Rome during the persecution of Christianity by the pagan Roman emperor Domitian, who reigned 81 to 96. After having miraculously survived a bath in boiling oil, St. John was sent to work in the mines of Patmos, an island off the coast of Asia Minor, and it was there that he received his prophetic vision, as we saw there in chapter 1, and composed the book. With these details about the life of St. John in mind, the question regarding the originally intended audience and purpose of composition can be answered with little difficulty. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia seven churches that are in Asia. And we find out the names of those churches in verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatra, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So we know the author. As far as can be discerned from history and tradition, John the Apostle. Because of the massive persecution upon the Christians, he's in exile from his region, to a little island off the coast of Ephesus called Patmos. And he's working there in the mines as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He is writing a letter across the water to seven churches that he governed before the exile. In fact, those seven churches, if you have your map, are known today in their location. In fact, you can go on all sorts of journeys and pilgrimages through Turkey today and visit those seven churches. And if you take a pen, if you have one, I'd like you to draw a line from Ephesus. You find Ephesus there with a little box next to the E? Draw a line from that box to the box of Smyrna. That's the city of Smyrna. And then if you look above that, there's Pergamum with a little box. Draw a line from Smyrna to Pergamum. And then from that box to the box of Theatra. And then from Theatra to Philadelphia, I'm sorry, to Sardis. And then from Sardis to Philadelphia. And then from Philadelphia to Laodicea. What do you see? A horseshoe. Well, it's not only a funny shaped horseshoe, but it is also one of the major roads through that region. And interestingly enough, it's also the order in which those cities appear in the book of Revelation. As many have suggested, the reason for that, and it makes a lot of sense, is that this is the order in which the letter would have been delivered by the postal system. Or by the runner who was going, the Christian runner who was going along. He was running from city to city delivering this letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. 
Again, what does that do for you as you start to look at the book of Revelation? It immediately locks you into the historical context of the first century and the geography of that region. Hopefully, images of Russia and China and Gorbachev fade away. And you suddenly find yourself focused in on the early history of the church. Therefore, the originally intended audience of the book was the Christian communities of Asia Minor, who had been shepherded by St. John from Ephesus, previous to his exile, and the purpose of his composition, as we learn from the above quotation and elsewhere in the book, was to console and exhort them to patiently endure the present tribulation and that which would take place immediately thereafter. And he's writing to them from the island of Patmos. Do you see Patmos on your map? If you look at Ephesus, and you see Miletus just below there, halfway in between those two cities, if you then swim out in the ocean, from there you'll see a very large island. And next to that, another skinny long one, Patmos. John is right there on that little island, writing his letters to these seven churches of Asia Minor. No email back then, of course. What was the content of those letters? Well, you'll have to come back after the break to find out. Okay, we talked about the basic questions of author, audience, and purpose. And you'll learn more about the audience. You probably know a fair amount about St. John the Apostle. You know he was one of the twelve. He was the closest to our Lord among the twelve. He was called the beloved disciple. So you know a fair amount about John. But you probably don't know a whole lot about these seven churches of Asia Minor. I mean, many of you have probably visited Philadelphia, but not this Philadelphia. And the purpose of the book, we briefly looked at some of the hints to the purpose there in chapter 1. But as you read through the rest of the book, you learn more about that purpose. But we also need to talk about the literary style of the book. As someone mentioned earlier when I was asking you about the book, it is prophetic in style. Now you think, what is prophetic? Well, prophetic, that has to do with the future. And then we can, no, slow down. Prophetic in the Bible, prophecy in the Bible, or the purpose of a prophet in the Bible, is to be the mouthpiece of God. They are the instrument through which God speaks to His people about the present situation and about the consequences or the near future of how they respond to that present situation information they're given from God. You see this as you read through the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. If you read them, you'll find that they're writing about the historical context in which they're living, and they're speaking to the people about God's will in the present situation. And the result of them living in accord with that will or in discord with that will. And so the book of Revelation is the same. The book of Revelation is, as you see from the opening chapter, the Word of God delivered to the seven churches who needed the information through the mouthpiece, John. 
So immediately, again, as you hear that I say it as prophetic literature, do not immediately start thinking about 2,000 years in the future or some sort of code book. The prophets are not strange code books to unlock mysteries about the future. The prophets give us the revelation of God. And they're strange and encoded to us today because we don't know the historical context. We don't know anything about it. We don't read about it. And oftentimes when we hear a quotation from one of the prophets in the Old Testament, it's completely taken out of its literary and historical context. And so it looks mysterious and strange. And we'll talk some more about some of those images and some of the more confusing ones for us today as we go through the book of Revelation over the next couple of weeks. But first, in general, literary style. In the Bible, prophecy or prophetic literature comes in two different ways in general. That is, audible prophecy and visual prophecy. Audible prophecy is given when God says to a prophet, Go say to the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord. And the prophet goes to the people of Judah and says, Thus says the Lord. If you do this, it will go well. If you do this, it will not be so well. Visual prophecy is the one that gets confusing for us. Visual prophecy is when God shows a vision to a prophet. And he says, now go tell the people of Judah what you see. And sometimes the prophet is confused by the vision. The prophet might say, "Uh, but what does this mean? And an angel explains to him the meaning of the prophecy. And when the angel explains, or when the prophet understands, or God explains to the prophet the visual image, again, you're always grounded in the historical context. Think of Daniel. The prophet Daniel. He has a dream in the evening. And he sees a ram standing, and then a he-goat with one big horn running at that ram in full speed. And he pierces the ram and kills him. And then the horn breaks off of the he-goat and comes and develops into four little horns. And you might think, that's weird stuff. (laughs) No! In the context, John scratches his head. What's this all mean? And there's an angel standing there in his vision. He says, what does this mean? The angel says, well, the ram with the two horns is the Medo-Persian Empire. And the he-goat that runs at him at full speed across the face of the earth is Alexander the Great and the Greek army that conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. But right after he conquered the Medo-Persian Empire, he died. The horn broke off and four horns grew in its place. That is, the four generals that took over the Greek Empire after Alexander died. Gosh, how could I know any of that stuff? That's going to be difficult. I don't remember. Don't worry. It's right there in the book. But no one ever reads that part. Because it's not exciting. You think Alexander, Medo-Persia, oh, whatever. Boy, the goat and the ram, that was really neat. And we'll make some big pictures of it. Right? You ever been to a prophecy seminar? I went to a seven-day Adventist prophecy seminar once for fun. And the images up on the board, it was all this, the goat and the ram and all this stuff, but no explanation of the historical context that was actually given to you by the book itself. When you scratch your head and you say, what does this all mean? Some prophecy seminar guy is up there and he says, well, you see the ram with the two horns, that is Russia and China. And the goat with the one horn, that is Ronald Reagan. But he's not with us anymore. 
right? You're laughing. I've heard this stuff. And there are people right now today, somewhere in the United States, listening to that. One thing we can learn from reading these books is just simply read them carefully and at least take the explanations that the book gives us about the imagery. That's a nice place to start. The book of Revelation, as with the prophets in the Old Testament, is prophetic and it comes in two different ways to us. One is, thus says the Lord. Another is, and I saw in the night's vision. So, audible and visual prophecy. And again, the audible prophecy, it's kind of boring for us. Yeah, this is the Lord. You've got to reform your life. Okay, whatever. But the horn and the goat, oh. So it's the visual prophecy that's confusing for us, and that's why it's so exciting. And that's why it's so manipulated. Tragically, for many, the book of Revelation is that second kind of prophecy. The book of Revelation primarily is visual prophecy. John sees a vision and he's told to write down what he sees. What he sees is dependent upon prophecy, visual prophecies in the Old Testament. In fact, he's expecting that you understand those visions. And we'll talk about those as we go into the heart of the book of Revelation. But the primary images that John draws from or that he sees comes out of the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. The three books among the prophets in the Old Testament that are primarily visual prophecy. And just as Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Daniel saw visions of goats and rams that had something to do with the immediate historical context and the immediate future relevant for the people for which the book was being given. So the book of Revelation, in the same way, is just like the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. It reveals to you, a member of the Church of Asia Minor, the present situation from God's perspective and what He wants you to deal, what He wants you to do with it. How He wants you to get through it. And why? Well, okay, fine. I see what you're saying, but then what does the book of Revelation mean for me? Why should I read the book? For the very same reason as you should read the rest of the Bible. For the very same reason that you should read the epistle to the Romans. The epistle to the Ephesians. Because as reading them and understanding the author and the audience and the historical context, you can gather from them basic principles about what God wants you to do now. If this is what he said to the Romans through Paul in that present situation, well, you Jewish Christians and you Gentile Christians, stop making fun of each other over kosher laws and circumcision. Get along, because you're all sinners before God, and you have all been baptized into God through Jesus Christ. Well, from there, you can gather some basic principles about why you shouldn't fight about who's going to make the coffee at the next coffee social. And how you should get along, maybe, at the parish council. And how you should love your brother who lives next door. Basic literary style of the book of Revelation is prophetic, primarily visual style, which we see in Zechariah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. And those being the most confusing for us, the ones we will spend the most time right now talking about. Visual imagery, prophecy, rams, horns, all that stuff. 
confusing for us oftentimes because we are not immersed in the biblical culture. We're not immersed in the agrarian culture of the biblical culture. First of all, one thing you'll notice as you read the book of Revelation and other prophetic literature in the Old Testament is colors. Colors. Colors mean something. So, for example, a rainbow. What does the word rainbow or the image of a rainbow remind you of? Noah, the flood. What else? The pot of gold. God's covenant with humanity. It's not just to remind you about Noah and the flood. Remember, the, the rainbow is given as a sign of the covenant by God that He would not kill everyone again by a massive flood. So it's a sign of God's faithfulness, a sign of His covenantal love. Rainbows are also shown in the Bible as an re- a example of God's splendor and glory, which is not unrelated to what we just said. So God's love or splendor and His glory as He reveals Himself in the Bible oftentimes is in the symbol of a rainbow. An individual sees God and he's surrounded by a rainbow. Another thing you see in the Bible or another thing you see in prophetic literature is the color white. What does white remind you of? Purity. Why? Well, when you take something that is dirty, uh, say a a t-shirt, it's got some stains on it, and you scrub it down, and it's white. It's clean. So white is a symbol of purity. Very natural experience for all of us. So white will be used in the Bible as a symbol of cleanliness or purity, but it also is used as a symbol of something I see as I look across the surface of the heads in the room. You know what I see? Wisdom. White in the Bible is also a symbol of wisdom. Because when you grow old, when you're supposed to become more wise, your hair turns white. And so the man with the white head is the man who is wise. Okay, so wisdom. Black. The symbol black, or the color black, what does it remind you of? Why? Well, let's say you're in the middle of the night and you turn the lights out. Right? What's going to happen? You immediately are fearful that you may fall, you may get hurt. What happens if you walk outside there's no lights, it's it's dark and you hear a noise in the distance? Right? Fear. Dark. So black is oftentimes in the Bible a symbol of destruction or death or something bad, something foreboding happening. Again, it's from your natural experience. Purple or scarlet. Why? Very good, right. In the ancient world, you made purple, the purple dye, from grinding up shells of mollusks. And that purple dye took a long time to make. It was very expensive. And so oftentimes only the very wealthy and sometimes even reserved for just royalty. And so purple becomes synonymous or scarlet becomes synonymous with royalty. But what else would you associate with royalty? Power. Corrupt power. Pride. Pomp. 
those things are also uh, associated with the colors we'll see in the Bible. What about red? Huh? Red. Red is a symbol of violence and war in the Bible. As many have already mentioned. Why? Because when you cut your hand, blood comes out. Right? So, red is the symbol of blood. Or blood is the color red. And so, therefore, red in the Bible oftentimes symbolizes violence or war. Now, those are not all the colors, but those are the major ones. So, if you see a horse that is white, or you see a horse that is red, right? you associate with those those symbols. So, the red horse, as we'll see in the book of Revelation, brings violence, war, bloodshed. So, you don't have to be scared that a red horse is going to come on the horizon, but a red horse is a symbol of violence and war that is coming. Literary structure of the book. That's another thing that's very confusing for us. As you read through the book of Revelation, sometimes about three or four chapters into it, where am I? Didn't I already read that? And you keep reading, it's happening again. You'll find the book of Revelation is structured according to seven and four. Why is that? As you read through the book of Revelation, there are four cycles of seven. There are seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Four times seven. Why? Twenty-eight. No. (laughs) Why? Because Leviticus chapter 26, in Leviticus chapter 26, God describes His punishment upon the people of Israel if they do not keep His covenant. And and He describes it in four cycles of seven. Why four? Well, four in the Bible means universal. Four directions, north, south, east, and west. It will come from all the directions as you see in Leviticus 26 and the book of Revelation. The city is surrounded. And why seven? That's God's lucky number. Right? Why seven? Seven in the Old Testament in particular is associated with covenant. Why? Because the Hebrew root for the verb to swear, shavah, is the same Hebrew root as the noun seven. Sheva. In fact, you'll find plays between the two in covenantal narratives in the Bible. classic example of this is in Genesis chapter 21. Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, what is the meaning of these seven new lambs you have given me? And Abraham says, you will take these as a sign that I dug this well. And so the men swore and made a covenant. And the place was called Be'er Sheva, the well of seven or the well of swearing. A number of other examples like this. We talked about Noah already in the covenant. Do you know how many times the word covenant appears in that narrative in Genesis chapter 9? Seven times. 
That's weird. No, it's not weird at all. So why seven in the Bible? Why seven in the book of Revelation? Why seven in Leviticus 26? Because God is acting in relation to man according to the covenant that he has made with man and the covenant that man has made with God. And what he does with them or doesn't do with them is related to that covenant because in the Bible, God is faithful to his covenant. Again, we'll talk some more about that as we go through the book of Revelation in the next two weeks. Now, major interpretive models of the book of Revelation. When we began today, I asked you, what is the book of Revelation about? And I mentioned the word apocalypse. Interpretive models. What I mean by that is that there are three primary ways that people have historically understood the book of Revelation as we go throughout history. And there are three primary ways that people understand the book of Revelation today. Some more popular than others. And even, this would, could be said about the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. The first is futuristic. The futuristic model. What is the book of Revelation? Well, it's a code book for unlocking the events that will happen at the end of time. The return of Christ. The rise of the Antichrist. Armageddon, all these things are things that are in the distant future or maybe, as every generation has thought, our present situation. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. That's a futuristic model for understanding the book of Revelation. So that means when you're reading the book of Revelation, everything in there, you're, you're looking for events that have to do with your present situation and the future. The four horses. Now the four horses, that... That could be, let's see, that maybe that is China, North Korea, and, right? There's a problem with the futuristic model. And that is the book of Revelation. <laughs> the book of Revelation told us that it is about the present situation and what is to soon take place. And it's written to seven churches of Asia Minor that aren't around anymore. So the book of Revelation is for us some sort of futuristic code book. That means the book of Revelation would have been totally irrelevant for every generation for the last 2,000 years, including the seven, the seven cities for which it was written. doesn't make a lot of sense. And in fact, when you read the book of Revelation, you run into major problems when you try to apply that model to the book. Revelation chapter 12 tells us about the birth of Jesus. Birth of Jesus. He'll be reborn. It also tells us about his death and resurrection and his ascension to the Father and enthronement at his right hand. When did the ascension happen? 2,000 years ago. The book of Revelation also describes to us the destruction of Jerusalem. When did that happen? AD 70. As you're reading the book, what you have to do then is take these images and either pick and choose which ones you want to be about the future and which ones that you just can't, you can't possibly make to be the future, or you have to reread those passages and make them images of the future. Well, maybe Jesus will be born again. Maybe he will die and rise from the dead again. Maybe the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt and they'll put a temple in there and the Antichrist will appear. That's not what it says. 
And in fact, it says that the events are very near. And it's written for the Christians of the period. So the futuristic model has a lot of problems. It completely disregards also the historical context of those seven churches. Think of if this book is about 2,000 years later, the rise of Gorbachev and North Korea and whatever else, what would the Christian of Asia Minor think of the book? Right? He's supposed to do something with it. He's supposed to read it, it says, and listen to it. And blessed is he who reads it and listens to it, for the time is near. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? He's sitting there reading about a book that God has said is about the present and very near future, but it in reality only has its fulfillment 2,000 years later or 10 billion years later. Major problems. Now, I'm not, not saying the book of Revelation does not tell us about the end of the world. There are some passages in the book of Revelation at the very end that talks about the second coming of Christ, the resurrection, and the judgment. But the information that's given there is no different than the information we're given about the second coming of Christ, the resurrection, the judgment, that we're given in Paul's epistles and the Gospels. Another interpretive model. Well, futuristic doesn't work. Another one that's been tried is the historical or the historicist model. And that is that the book of Revelation tells you about the seven ages of history. Why? Well, God created the world in seven years or uh, seven days. And so, therefore, all of history will be laid out in a seven-part structure. So, therefore, the book of Revelation tells us about those seven ages of history. Well, it's true that God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's also possible, and it makes a lot of sense, that all of history would be divided into seven ages. But it doesn't make a lot of sense to relate that to the book of Revelation or to those seven churches of Asia Minor. The historical position often takes the seven churches of Asia Minor and sees them as the seven ages. Okay? So Ephesus is the early church. Pergamum is the rise of the papacy in the Middle Ages. Sardis is the Reformation. What would be the problem with that read? Very subjective, right? Every individual who has attempted this for the last 2,000 years has placed themselves in a different spot in one of the churches, right? What age? Well, we must be in the age of Pergamum. No, I think it's Philadelphia. Sardis. Every age that does this, has attempted this, individual interpreters have tried this, ends up placing themselves in different stages in different churches Again, what's this? not only is it inconsistent, but what's the major problem you see right off? These seven churches are seven real churches in Asia Minor with coffee socials, donuts, people complaining about who's going to be on the parish council. Not exactly. But there are seven real churches in seven real cities in Asia Minor in the first century facing real life problems. And they all have names. And so if we take these seven ages and apply them to the seven churches, what we've done is complete, made complete nonsense out of these cities. And in fact, again, what would be the relevance of that read of the book for those Christians in the first century? 
Finally, there is what's called the preterist interpretation. Preterist meaning past. And that is that the book of Revelation tells us about the first century that the book of Revelation says it tells us about. Seems obvious enough. Unfortunately, it's not that exciting for the average person. Well, but if it's all about the first century and about these seven churches, then why is it relevant for me today? I mean, it's not as exciting as the Antichrist. Oh, I like the Tim LaHaye version. Well, even if it may not make us so excited when we first read it, we have to understand that the early church history is part of our history. We are connected to that church in the first century. And we need to know the history of the church and what the church endured in those first years. And by reading about how God advised the Christians in the first century through John, through this vision, to deal with their present situation and their present persecutions, we can gather from that the way in which God might want us to live our own lives and deal with our own neighbor and deal with trials and tribulations of our own time, which at the present moment may not be all that great. But as you know throughout history, sometimes has become almost devastating. The book of Revelation is relevant for us, even if you read it within its historical context, because it tells you how the historical context of the first century can teach us about the historical context today. The same as if you read the letter to the Romans or to the letter to the Ephesians. You might think, but I don't remember reading the book of Revelation this way. I don't remember reading the New Testament this way. I mean, what are you talking about? There's these different ways of reading the scriptures. Some things can be about the historical context and yet have an application to the future? Well, this is what the church has always understood. In fact, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, there's a nice little uh, set of paragraphs that lays out for you what's called the senses of Scripture. Paragraph 115 of the Catechism. According to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual. The latter being subdivided into allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. The profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of Scripture in the church. Paragraph 116. The literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture and discovered by exegesis, that is interpretation, following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of sacred Scripture are based on the literal. Very important. If you want to understand how the book of Revelation applies to your life today, you have to understand what the literal historical context and the intent of the, letter, the book of Revelation was in the first place. And only then will you be able to apply it properly to your own present life. Paragraph 117. The spiritual sense. Thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of Scripture, but also the realities and the events about which it speaks can be signs. The allegorical sense, we can acquire a more profound understanding of events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Thus, the cross of the Red Sea is a sign or a type of Christ's victory and also of Christian baptism. As St. Paul tells us 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The moral sense, the events reported in Scripture, ought to lead us to act justly. As St. Paul says, they were written for our instruction. And finally, the anagogical sense. In the Greek, anagoge, leading. We can view realities and events in terms of their eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland. Thus, the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem is mentioned in the book of Revelation. As you open up the book of Revelation, the first thing you see is the seven letters to the seven churches. The seven letters lead into the other cycles of seven that we talked about. And it begins with a scroll. And on that scroll are seven seals. And Christ opens all seven, beginning with the first. Do you want to know what that seal is all about? You have to come next Saturday. So, bring a friend and bring your Bible. Bring your Bible and bring a friend and we'll review some of these things as we dive into the book of Revelation. Properly being prepared with images and colors and numbers, literary styles and historical context. The book of Revelation for you will not be a code book for the future, but will rather be as all of the scriptures the Word of God which gives to you faith, hope, and love. Not a book about destruction, but a book about God's faithfulness and His plan for the church. It's a beautiful book, and I'll see you next Saturday. Uh, yes, uh, one person beat you. They came up at the break there. Uh, question about the colors. My brother held out the Bible and you say, what are all these colors in this Bible? What do they mean? Well, it's a code. <laughs> a secret code. No. You know, if you look at the ancient manuscripts of the Bible, you'll find that there's underlining and all sorts of notes scribbled all over the edges. As you might notice, some nice, a Bible that someone has or a study Bible has lots of notes in it, right? Well, the colors that I use are just, it's a color scheme that makes sense to me. So, I would suggest if you are going to start making notes in your Bible, first of all, do it carefully and respectfully. Uh, and also, uh, use a color system that makes sense to you. So, for example, for me, green is the image of creation. Makes sense to me. It just kind of that reminds me of that. So if I see a passage in, say, the Book of Revelation that immediately makes me reminds me of, say, the second day of creation or third day of creation or something, I highlight it in green. Or if I see something that has to do in the Old Testament with the uh, rise of the monarchy, something that has to do with royalty or something like that, or as Jesus as the Christ, the Christos or Hamashiach. The, the anointed king, I usually anoint that in purple. 
So those are, but that makes sense to me. I mean, again, you want to pick colors that mean something to you, make sense to you, and that way you don't have to say, gosh, I wonder what that color was. Why did I highlight that color? It should immediately remind you of something in your experience. That's all. Okay. Second? Oh, sorry. What was the other? Oh, no, I'm not going to go over my colors. I want you to figure out a color system that makes sense for you. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's what that last sense of Scripture was that we talked about. But remember, and I slowed down there, as the Catechism tells you, all of the other senses are based on that literal sense. So, for example, if you read the book of the letter to the Romans and you don't understand the historical context of Paul and he was writing from Corinth, and he was writing this letter up to the Romans because he planned on going there, but he had heard about some of the problems in the church in Rome, so he decided to write a letter, so when he got there, he didn't have to yell at him too much. Well, if you don't understand the historical context, you won't understand the letter, and therefore won't be able to apply it in an eschatological manner to your own life or to the, to the, uh, you know, the end times or to the, the, you know, the, the purpose of it all. You have to understand the basic literal sense to be able to gather the principles that you could gather from it. Okay? This may be, this may be surprising to us, uh, or maybe for you, you may think, gosh, that's, of course that makes sense. I actually, it was at, a, at a Bible study in a, a church um, uh, up in northern part of the United States, and after the talk, it was, on, it was on the, for the Feast of Peter and Paul, and I was talking about some of the ways in which Peter and Paul are misunderstood and what they wrote and how we could better understand them, the historical context. And a very nice lady came up to me. She had been going to a Bible study at the nearby Lutheran church, and she was very confused. She said, are you telling me that the epistle to the Romans is not written to me? She understood because she's a Roman Catholic that the epistle to the Romans is written to her. How could she think that? Well, very easily. By forgetting who Paul is, the historical context, the church in Rome, and all of that stuff. And so therefore, to that degree, she wasn't able to really apply it to her life. The letter of the Romans is or in a certain sense, if she understands that it was written to the church in Rome, and from that, because God is its author, she can gather the basic principles that God was trying to tell the church in Rome through the Apostle Paul, and how that might be applicable to our own life today. We're no longer debating in the church about kosher laws and circumcision. But there are lots of fights and things happening in the church today. And we can gather from what Paul said in his wisdom what God wants us to do today in the present situation. The question is about the end times. What can we gather from the Bible about the end times? What is the church taught? Uh, I would suggest the Catechism of the Catholic Church has a nice little section on eschatology, the end times, the eschaton, the last thing, what's going to happen. And a wonderful section about that, about the resurrection from the dead, the judgment, and then decide where you're going to go. 
So um, the book, of, uh, the New Testament does talk about that. Paul does talk about that a little bit. The book of Revelation does talk about that eschaton. But it's at the very end of the book. And we'll talk about that when we get there. And you'll find as you read it, you think, oh yeah, that's what the nuns taught me when I was a kid. <laughs> Surprise. Okay, what else? That was how many we got in this? Four questions? Yes, tell me. When he wrote this? No, uh, John was a very young man when he was with Jesus. So, um, according to the tradition, John was the last apostle living. And he died, and he died sometime around 100. Okay? Sometime in the late 90s or around there. And, oh, he would be very old. Yeah. Yeah. So he'd be, you know, depending on how old he was when he was with Jesus in the earthly ministry there, he would probably be in his 90s or 100, somewhere in there. Okay. Oh yeah, they're not really a, they're not interested in the economy of the Roman Empire when they sent John to Patmos. The purpose was to get rid of him. They tried to boil him in oil, and he didn't die. Okay, that's someone you want to be careful with. So, what are we going to do? So they sent him off in exile. You'll find this actually in the story of a number of uh, martyrdoms of uh, in the history of the church. You know, St. Sebastian, right? He was shot with arrows. He didn't die. They thought he was dead. They walked away. They left him full of arrows. And then, once he was uh, healed by the local Christians, they got him back to do his health. He immediately got out of bed and went and began to preach to the commander again. And then they beat him with clubs and killed him. So, um, the, the oftentimes you'll have kind of a series of uh, martyrdom situations that Paul, Paul was stoned. And then after the people left, he got up and walked back in the city. Okay. And I'm sure it hurt. So, so, all right. Yes. Anything else? Okay. So I'll see you. Oh, we have one last question. Yes. We're actually going to talk next Saturday about that historical context and how important that perspective is. You'll find that there's a mention of Jesus saying to the Christians not to be hot or cold. Or not to be lukewarm. Sorry, rather hot or cold. I wish you were either hot or cold. But not lukewarm. We'll find that there was some sulfur baths nearby. And when they became lukewarm, they stunk. And you could smell them all throughout the area. Ever been to sulfur baths? Hot springs. So, that historical context, the man in the back just mentioned, is extremely important for us. And we'll be talking about that next Saturday as we jump into that historical context and we look at churches, who they were, what they were doing, what were they facing, and what was the plan that God had for them when they made it through the tribulation. Because there was a plan for them on the other side. And that we'll talk about on Saturday. Thank you.